African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Well, thank you for joining us right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. You're listening to African Dialogue with me, Benjamin Moshadama. And thank you for joining us on our frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. That's our shortwave service. Well, today on our program, we'll be looking at the status of being statelessness and looking at that. We know that next week, Monday, will be like uh, uh, the world we're looking at World Refugee Day. So we'll be looking at this very interesting dynamic of statelessness. But let's quickly move on and get our news and Musa is standing by. In the headlines, Republic of Congo's opposition leader Jean-Marie Michel Mokoko detained over coup allegations. A monitoring mission on South Sudan appointed by the Human Rights Council and South Africa's president urges youth to defend their freedom and to help build the country. A very good morning to you. 
Security services in the Republic of Congo have detained opposition leader General Jean-Marie Michel Mukoko over accusations of planning a coup in a video filmed in 2007. The general, who came third during the March 20 presidential election with 14%, has been detained for questioning at the country's security services as investigations on allegations against him intensify. Last week, the Justice Minister requested a speed-up of judicial procedures in Mukoko's case. Mukoko was Congo's military chief between 1987 and 1993. The United Nations Security Council has unanimously authorized a crackdown on arms smuggling in the high seas of Libya by allowing the inspections of vessels for illicit weapons. The European Union proposed the Council resolution to expand its naval operations in the Mediterranean, which the 15-member Security Council authorized in October to seize and dispose of boats operated by human traffickers. A monitoring mission on South Sudan has been appointed by the Human Rights Council. It will assess the human rights situation in the country in order to establish facts in support of transitional justice, accountability, reconciliation and healing. South Sudan gained independence in July 2011, making it the world's youngest nation. However, the country plunged into violence and chaos following political infighting between President Sovikir and his former Vice President Rehik Machar in December 2013. Pin reports. The formation of a transitional unity government in April of this year was welcomed by the UN Security Council as an important milestone. The Commission on Human Rights in South Sudan will provide guidance to the government and will engage with international and regional bodies to promote accountability for human rights violations and abuses. Its members are Yasmin Suka, a leading human rights lawyer from South Africa, who served on her country's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, American Kenneth Scott, a researcher on South Sudan with Amnesty International, and Godfrey M. Musila, a legal consultant from Kenya. The High Court in South Africa's capital, Pretoria, should deviate from the minimum sentence of 15 years imprisonment for convicted murderer Oscar Pistorius. Defence counsel Barry Rue has argued that neither the Supreme Court of Appeal or the trial court found he had intention of killing Riva Stienkamp. He submitted that Pistorius was not driven by evil intent when he fired shots at a perceived intruder killing Stienkamp. Last year, the Supreme Court of Appeal overturned Pistorius's culpable homicide conviction, finding him guilty of murder. Noma Bolane reports. Defence advocate Barry Rue has argued that the enemies against him in this case. He submitted that there's a perception that Oscar Pistorius wanted to kill his girlfriend without applying the context of the incident. He's argued that the factual findings are not being addressed, that both trial and appeals courts from the Pistorius have been frightened and feeling vulnerable on his stump. Rue further submitted that if Pistorius had wanted to kill Kienkam, he would not have taken steps to save her life after shooting her. He argued that Pistorius had wanted to protect his and Kienkam's life, but incorrectly in law, fired those shots, killing her instead. For more on the Oscar Pistorius sentencing proceedings, you can catch the live streaming streaming on www.channelafrica.co.za. 
South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has urged the youth to see June 16 as an inspiration for them to defend their freedom and to help build the country. He was speaking ahead of the 40th commemoration of the June 16 Soweto uprisings. The President and his deputy, Cyril Ramaphosa, will attend the main day commemoration at Orlando Stadium in Soweto tomorrow. Zuma explains. It is important for us to keep on remembering such days because if we forget, we might forget to defend our revolution, our freedom. The young people 40 years ago took very serious decisions to stand for their rights. And that's why we say to young people of today, it's now time to contribute in building South Africa towards the prosperity that we are talking about. Firstly, don't forget people sacrificed. We are now free. Don't forget that we have got to participate in one form or the other to build South Africa and have young people who take the national interests at heart. Recapping the top stories, Republic of Congo's opposition lead has been detained over coup allegations. A monitoring mission on South Sudan appointed by the Human Rights Council and South Africa's president urges the youth to defend their freedom and to help build the country. Always missing your favorite Channel Africa radio shows? Well, now you don't have to. We have a free catch-up service that allows you to listen to Channel Africa radio content from your cell phone, computer or tablet at your convenience. Visit www.channelafrica.co.za and click on Programs for a list of your favorite shows. Select what you want to hear. Click on Listen and enjoy Channel Africa Radio. It's as easy as that. Channel Africa Radio, the voice of the African Renaissance. And you are listening to African Dialogue. Remember, we come to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. Remember, you can interact with us via Twitter at uh, African Dialogue or you can find us on Twitter at Channel Africa One. Facebook us on uh, uh, Channel Africa. That's our page. That's Channel Africa. It's simply titled that. And we can uh, get also your thoughts on our SMS line on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Well, today we're looking at the issue of statelessness. We know that this is an issue that's almost on the peripheries, especially when you speak about uh, refugees. And it's a different status of what refugees are. But there's a lot of people who don't understand the status or the legal status of being stateless. But to help us unpack this definition, we have on the line the practitioner, Leon Isaacson, who's a managing director at Global Migration South Africa. We also have Wayne Ngube, who's an attorney at the litigation unit at the South African Lawyers for Human Rights. Uh, thank you both for giving us your time. I don't want to go into the definitions myself. I'd rather let you guys really assist us in terms of looking at the definitions because I'm not very much aware of the legal terms itself. But starting with you, Leon, what are we talking about when we speak about statelessness? For the opportunity, and I think it's a very important um, subject, I think it's, it's always good to start with the definition because it's not, it's not necessarily always clear. So a stateless person is someone who's not considered as a national of any state under the operation of, of normal law of the country. Um, and 
he or she would have no citizenship or nationality. Um, one must also remember that some stateless persons are also refugees. However, not all refugees are stateless, and many persons who are stateless have never crossed an international border. So let's just unpack that a little bit. The person who's deemed to be stateless could be in that position because they don't have documentation, so they would not typically have a passport or an ID or any kind of interim temporary document which says that they come from a particular country and are the responsibility, therefore the responsibility of that state, and they therefore don't have any identifiable citizenship or nationality. Um, some stateless people who move out of their country without documents are also refugees. And one often finds in a situation where refugees are in the process of being registered uh, and don't yet have asylum papers or refugee papers, they are effectively stateless because they, they have nothing to identify them. Um, this really, really becomes a big issue where people have to cross a border because you know if you've traveled that you can't cross a border, whether it's a land border or a sea border or a port or an airport, that you can't travel without identifying who you are and where you're from and where you're going to. So that basically kind of covers the broader definition of what we're dealing with. Okay, because in terms of this idea of statelessness, it's it's very interesting because um, the Someone doesn't under, wouldn't understand the difference between statelessness, um, Leon, and uh, being a refugee. Yeah. And so that's where the confusion comes in with the understanding. Can you elaborate on the differences there? Okay, so a refugee is typically someone who has left their, their normal country of, of nationality or residence. So let's just take an example like a Zimbabwean person or a person from Lesotho where there was a military coup last year. They've left their country. They then leave typically to the closest point where they can find refuge. Like, let's just use South Africa as an example. They say that there's a problem in my country. I'm being discriminated against or whatever the particular issue is. They then seek asylum. So if they don't come with documentation, they will then be given a document which says, this person has the following name. They are typically resident in um, Lesotho. They try to identify them with fingerprints and photographs. And they then say this person then has asylum seeker status. If that is deemed to be a valid claim um, in terms of the, the normal laws that are put in place by South Africa and the United Nations, that person can then take on refugee status. And with that, they get documentation. So they actually are not stateless. They are just simply given the status of an asylum seeker or a, or a refugee because of the, the circumstances or their, in the country or their personal circumstances. Right, let's, let's come to Wayne Ngube and introduce him and maybe move this uh, conversation a little bit um, uh, further. Uh, your thoughts there, um, Wayne, in terms of that, that technicality there and why we get that confusion between the refugee and the stateless person, why it's difficult for us to understand that, and also the condition of the stateless person how do they fit in into maybe a new country that they find themselves in? How would they actually survive in that particular condition? Yes, so I mean, uh, uh, rather, let me just start by further clarifying one of the distinctions with okay. the refugees and stateless people. And I think if you look at most of the acts uh, that govern refugee status in most countries, uh, it's what it's really speaking to is persecution for very specific reasons and an inability to avail yourself to the protection of your particular state. So 
already, whilst you have stateless people and mm. who are refugees as well, sure. uh, one of the primary issues around trying to determine whether someone is a refugee is uh, trying to determine whether or not his country of origin are able to protect him from a very specific persecution. Or So uh, the, the distinction gets mixed up because when most people see uh, refugees or stateless people, they just assume that they're, they're people who in their foreign homeland are unable to receive, uh, I suppose, proper assistance or documentation. Uh, the reality is most stateless people are, are not foreigners of uh, the, the land that they're presently uh, staying in. And a lot of the statelessness in the world, which is created, is created by uh, problematic laws, which do not reconcile either to allow people to be able to obtain documents in their country or to which do not reconcile with their own citizenship. And I think... Uh, you know, we always think about a lot of these issues as being issues in other places. And uh, that's certainly true. You think refugees mm. come from somewhere else, and mm. generally that is what actually happens. But a lot of the people who would qualify for that broad de- definition of statelessness that we just heard are people who would be entitled to citizenship under our own act. And the problem, at least from a South African point of view, but globally it has mirrored, or even worse in other countries, is a failure of the two acts which determine whether or not you qualify for citizenship mm. and whether or not you qualify for documentation do not uh, align themselves. Oh. Mm. Well, I'm going to take a break and then I'm going to continue with you, Wayne, in terms of that kind of definition itself, because I'm interested in expounding on, on what it actually means, because I'm still a little bit confused here where I sit. And I'm always thinking about if I'm confused, what is the listener also hearing? So I'll, I'll, we'll come back to that particular aspect of things. Hey, what are your thoughts on statelessness? Give us your thoughts on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven. And uh, you can email us at info at channelafrica.org. That's info at channelafrica.org. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back. A world that remains beset by so much human suffering, poverty, and deprivation. It is in your hands to make of our world a better one for all. From July 18, raise your hand and make a dedicated effort to keep helping others in any way you can. Make every day a Mandela Day. It is in your hands to make a difference. Well, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and uh, uh, you're listening to us on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. If you're listening to us on DSTV, we're on uh, DSTV Channel Audio Bouquet on 802. And uh, remember, you can also stream us live on www.channelafrica.co.za. That's channelafrica.co.za. Well, today we're speaking about something that seems complex at the moment, 
the issue of being statelessness of being stateless rather it's called statelessness and according to international law as we highlighted statelessness is a lack of nationality or the absence of a recognized link between an individual and any state and i want to go back to you know how does a person actually get to that point where they are stateless and maybe we're going to be rehashing this a lot but i think that we should because it seems like a lot of people seem one should understand what this is wayne how do you get to this point where you are deemed stateless is it because you don't have documentation or is it because the country that you're in does not recognize that you might not have those documents because when it comes to international law if you have migrated to another part of the world because of socioeconomic reasons politics shouldn't there be a status whereby you are allowed to be a refugee just those clarifications let's create let's create them for me so i can really understand how we can take this forward wayne yes okay so maybe let me further clarify uh the definitions and i think we we are given a very clear definition of statelessness which i think is very very easy for people to understand so maybe let me give you a clear definition uh, of someone who qualifies as a refugee in terms of our international conventions which has also been put into our refugee law here. Uh, the definition is specifically someone, A, outside of their country of origin, which is not a requirement for someone who's stateless. B, is someone who's facing persecution. So th- there has to be like uh, a specific threat to your person or your civil rights or something, which is not necessarily something that is a stateless person has to have. And C, for very specific reasons, race, religion, nationality, mm-hmm. so these are the reasons why you're facing persecution in your country. Mm-hmm. And uh, membership of a social group, ethnicity, mm-hmm. uh, and then the last thing is you're unable to avail yourself to the protection of your state. Mm-hmm. So you you, the, you you can be someone who faces persecution, uh, but then if your state can protect you, so let's take uh, a crude example, for instance, you have someone who's in a uh, a township where there's currently violence mm. and the, the police have not yet gone and dealt with it but the police in South Africa is equipped to uh, at least would like to believe is equipped to then deal with that and then present uh, uh, quell that particular disturbance mm. now should you seek the protection of your state you should be able to receive it here but then there are certain countries where either it is the state themselves who are protecting you or things are so bad that the state has no control uh, let's take Somalia, for example, where mm. large sections are governed uh, by Al-Shabaab, a terrorist group. Mm. Uh, so so that's the distinction. Where okay. statelessness, all we're saying is you are someone who is not able to access your nationality. Mm. Uh, so you might, you might not be facing any direct persecution mm. or anything like that, but you're not able to access your nationality. Obviously, there are people who are stateless and refugees because... Mm. Uh, their cause of plight and the reason why they left their country has also resulted in them not being able to access their their documentation or to be recognized by their state. A good example is in Eritrea and uh, Ethiopia. Mm. When the two countries split, a lot of people who were ethnically based, uh, who were Ethiopians, mm. but were considered to have come from a specific section of 
of uh, the country, which was no longer part of Ethiopia, mm. were then, in terms of law, stripped of their nationality, mm. and they had no mm. access to mm. to uh, they're no longer Ethiopian and they're not citizens. And uh, on the same uh, context, they had no way to show that they were Eritrean citizens either. Mm. So you have this situation where overnight, because of a change of law, you suddenly are not able to access the nationality of any nation. Mm. And that's really what sure. statelessness is. And okay. so uh, to say that it's any one specific thing, it can take many forms, but mm. ultimately the result is that you cannot uh, access the nationality of any country. Sometimes it can mm. be through documentation. Sometimes uh, it can take a different form where you are actively stripped of your nationality by mm. your government. Sometimes it's because... The requirements, uh, let's take a practical example here in South Africa, where we look at our Birth Registration Act, which requires you to be able to prove your nationality in a lot of different ways. But then you think of the historic context where people were had to carry mm. DOM passes in the past and uh, registering in a lot of rural mm. centers was difficult or people did not do it in direct opposition to the apartheid government. When they are now trying to register their children, uh, they can't even prove their own uh, nationality sure, because sure. they don't have all these apartheid era mm. documents that they wanted, and now the, the children cannot be documented. Sure, let, a lot of I, different I, examples I can. Sure, I think those examples help us a lot because I think it kind of cements, you know, just the definition themselves. Because sometimes we can say, well, someone has a lack of nationality, and you know, sometimes we just stick to those phrases, but we don't actually know what they actually mean. So I really appreciate those examples, Wayne. Uh, coming back to you, Leon, in terms of if someone is in a stateless person in a different state to the original state, what are the limitations they have as citizens or non-citizens in that state? Look, it's, 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 it's extremely difficult because, uh, as was mentioned earlier, um, you are you, you, you typically in in any transaction in any country, even in your own country, have to present some kind of proof of identity. And if you have no documentation, uh, you have a serious problem. Sure. So, so when you look at um, what a, what a person can access or can't access, um, it is always advisable. And I know that it's very difficult in South Africa. Sure. It's always advisable for people to declare that they are asylum seekers or are seeking to have their status. Clarified. I mean, we're assuming for what you just mentioned, the question you just raised, that the person would be a foreigner inside South Africa, mm, mm. and and they they don't have any proof of their identity. And mm. um, from what the from what was discussed earlier, you could in fact have South Africans who who don't have founding documents, either through a, a problem confusion at home affairs or incorrect documentation. They end up with no documents, and um, I, I've, I've heard of cases like that in the past. But one doesn't tend to hear about a lot of those at the moment. I think Home Affairs have actually forced people to register their children early so they get documents. So by the time they are adults, they've actually got full full documentation. Mm. So when it comes to a foreigner, um, typically going into a bank, for example, or getting your children into a school, um, it becomes a restriction because you have no no identity and typically no identifying documents and no status in the country. And until you go and declare yourself either as an asylum seeker um, initially and then a refugee, and then register your children with the same status. Um, the difficulty for any of those people, even once they get those 
um, documents for asylum seeker or refugee mm. status is that they can't travel. Um, the additional thing in South South Africa is because of the numbers, and we know that those numbers have been very high because of predominantly what occurred in the Great Lakes region with um, Rwanda and Burundi sure. about 16, 17 years ago, and then with Zimbabwe after 2006, that those numbers are very high. Estimates are somewhere between one and a half and three million people mm. have either been or are in South Africa with various levels of status by now, because obviously it's, it's a long time ago. Mm. Uh, some of them have got documentation and some haven't. Mm. I must just say that with what's been happening in South Africa is people who have not had documentation have been part of what they call a dispensation process. Mm. So you've had for example, Zimbabweans who've come here and had no documentation at all, or no founding documentation. Firstly, the South African government has said th their governments should go through the first phase of, of giving them documents. Mm. So they need, they need to get a passport from the embassy or the consulate. So they then, they then have moved up a level. And then South Africa is saying, well, as an additional thing, while you are here um, claiming your status as being outside of your country, you're not quite an asylum seeker or refugee anymore, you now have to apply for a, a visa or a permit. Mm. It's a visa now in terms of the new law to, um, to, to give you the ability and the status to, to work, study, or conduct business. Mm. So that, that kind of legalizes people to use the term broadly. But in, 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 in summary, it is a huge um, disadvantage for a person not to have proper documentation and to try and live a normal life as we know it. Mm. Outside South Africa, um, Leon, because, I mean, coming to you, Wayne, Leon highlighted the issues there on, you know, there are systems that are put in place in a country like South Africa. But I'm thinking in, if you're not in a country like South Africa that really has a, a kind of more progressive way of looking at the whole refugee crisis, um, uh, you know, how would someone have to deal with these issues of being stateless? Um, and also, how, how do they actually remedy the, the situation of that condition? Are there any systems they can follow? Maybe when you look at a very strict uh, a continent such as uh, Europe or you look at the United States themselves, they have very stringent rules when it comes to uh, their laws. Well, I think, uh, well, before we start pronouncing South Africa as being able to actually deal with stateless issues, I think what you're talking uh, was highlighted there is a mechanism to assist uh, people who have some sort of uh, tie to their nationality to begin with. Okay. Uh, so, and, and that's really for foreign nationals. So we're talking about the people, because if you look at the dispensations, uh, those dispensations still required that those nationals went to their embassies and got documents mm. in which South Africa would then put permits in. Okay. So it's not that they were issued with... What happened was the South African government, uh, yes, took a progressive step to have the different embassies uh, come and account for their nationals, mm. which then is great, helpful and then it stops any unnecessary stateless people. But then for those people who genuinely cannot access their nationality... Uh, it, those are not solutions that help them, and neither are the ones through the asylum system, because eventually, uh, once their claims are decided, mm. they'll find that they do not... So what do they do? I mean, that's that's uh, what I'm trying to understand. Yeah, so what do yeah, they do? So, like, even in South Africa, we're struggling with this, because there actually is no part to the regularization of actual people who have 
no way to prove your nationality. I think those mechanisms have uh, given an opportunity for people who found it difficult to prove their nationality uh, or difficult to access documentation, foreigners specifically, a solution. Hmm. But if we're speaking about people who are actually South African, who have been rendered stateless from the laws, there actually still is nothing in the in our laws which deals with those people. Yes, it is a, a smaller number, but it is uh, still a significant amount of people who cannot even get assistance here. If we look uh, externally, yes, I think the problem is made is a lot worse in other countries than it might be here. Uh, but uh, so if you look at uh, in a lot of uh, nationalities in the north of Africa, mm. uh, you have a situation where uh, mothers cannot pass on nationality to their children. Hmm. And so if the father is not around or in the picture or willing to take responsibility for a child or or is married to a foreign national, uh, then that child is rendered stateless. So I think the, the, the global hmm. epidemic of statelessness is something which is significant. Uh, there are no clear solutions which we can say, yes, this is what uh, is now in place in other countries. But that's why uh, the United Nations... Uh, specifically the United Nations Refugee Agency, is uh, taking a massive stance on statelessness and is trying to initiate regional uh, uh, regional conventions to get to a system where birth res- re- registration laws and the like are harmonized to mm. prevent statelessness. Because the latest estimates uh, from the UN say as many as 14 million people are stateless around the world. Yes. Uh, and mm. so that's why you'll see the international conventions like the UN Convention on Statelessness. And a lot of that then lays the platform in which the different countries can start incorporating laws to deal specifically with mm. uh, stateless situations. I think uh, the situations which can be sorted out through dispensations, which still require you to have a passport from mm. your country, means those are not like the most problematic situations because it means that person can still go to their country and access a passport. Mm. Uh, I, uh, those are more migration issues in terms of how you regularize yeah. yourself in a foreign country, but mm. you still have access to your own nationality. But we're talking about 14 million people who genuinely cannot access documents in mm. any country. Mm. who need to be catered for. And I think that's why it's important to draw the distinction between asylum seekers because because there are people who cannot go back to their country because Mm. they fear being killed or persecuted, Mm. but that is still their country. Then Mm. stateless people are people who have no country if they go anywhere. It's not that they fear being killed or executed, they just are not nationals in any country. Hmm. Well, that's a complicated situation. And, you know, I want to come back to the issue of, uh, you know, in terms of... um, a human rights issue. Why is it uh, taking so long for um, international bodies and also governments to actually find a way around this issue? And that's something that makes seems to make matters more complicated. What are your thoughts? Give us your thoughts if you're on our SMS plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero, or you can email us at info at channelafrica.org. I've got uh, Wen Mube, who's an attorney at the litigation unit at the South African Lawyers 
Centers for Human Rights. I also have Leon Isaacson, who's a Managing Director and Practitioner at the Global Migration South Africa. I'm going to take a quick break and we'll be back with this story. This is Lira, South African Afro soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, celebrating 20 years of South African freedom and democracy. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And um, if you're listening to us on DSTV, remember we're in 802. And if you're listening to us uh, online, it's on www.channelafrica.co.za. Today we're unpacking the uh, condition of being stateless. And uh, we've got um, uh, Leon Isaacson back on our show. He is a managing director at Global Migration South Africa. Wayne Mube is with us as well. He's the attorney at the litigation unit at the South African Lawyers for Human Rights. Uh, This is a concerning issue just to look at how not much has been done over the years really to actually make sure that this condition is actually dealt with. Why is it taking so long, Leon, for actually international bodies, legal systems to actually find themselves around of dealing with uh, this issue of statelessness? Well, firstly, you're correct in saying that it's it's taken long um, and these are technical and difficult issues, um, mm. also obviously spanning many countries. So the, the UN has actually um, launched a campaign to end statelessness. They, they did this at the end of 2014, so mm. it's a fairly recent thing, about a year, year and a bit ago, year and a half ago. Mm. And, and they've, they've, they've given a 10-year period, so they're actually treating it as a, it as a project. And it is probably to do with um, some of the difficult states which wane I mentioned earlier, plus the fact that people are leaving leaving their states and their countries, and, and many states in Africa and the Middle East, particularly if one thinks of Syria, plus um, some of the um, Central African countries like Somalia and Eritrea, um, are, are states which affect states where people cannot access their rights at the moment. So they could be um, have not not have documentation and mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. be in a position to access their rights. And obviously it takes a body as big as the UN to hold states responsible and then to hold them accountable. I think I think the difficulty is then um, finding those people who slip through the cracks and who can't um, identify themselves as asylum seekers or refugees and can't access that particular channel um, and then to kind of stick up their hand in some way. And I think that's going to be the difficulty and probably with human rights and other bodies who are committed to this process, identifying them to UN bodies so that there can be a process, um, a process can commence for those people Mm -hmm. to actually obtain status where they are Mm -hmm. and then to access the, the, Mm -hmm. the, the, the normal status and nationality of their own country. When your thoughts there on the processes in order to deal with this uh, issue of being stateless uh, from a legal perspective? Yes, uh, I think I mirror a lot of what Leon is saying. Uh, one of the biggest reasons why it's taken so long uh, is this really has been an invisible problem. 
You know, it, it is not as something as clear-cut as refugees, which is in everyone's eyes. You can see the migration of people flying through the Mediterranean. There's a lot of media coverage. You can see when people from other countries enter your borders, and you can see uh, people in refugee camps. Uh, stateless people are not that easy to identify, and they're a very small marginalized group. In fact, most of them don't even understand. Like, It's not like you go to a stateless person and say you're stateless and they'll even understand that. The refugees know they're in another country because they've fled persecution. So most countries didn't even understand that this problem A was so big or even existed. In fact, you speak to a lot of countries, they'll still deny that statelessness is an issue. Uh, so th- that's one of the big reasons why it's taken so long. And uh, one of the complex things, like what Liam was saying, is the solutions are really rooted around harmonizing uh, laws in multiple countries. Because even if South Africa fixes its situation, right, and they have a situation where they can register all the citizens mm. and ensure that none of their own citizens become stateless. If across the borders uh, in Lesotho, uh, to take a random example, not that this is true, mm. uh, their, their laws either actively seek to disenfranchise a specific group of people in that country mm. or be uh, do not uh, facilitate a process where such birth registrations are easy to make. Mm. Uh, what you'll find is the state of people will seek solutions in South Africa, and then those people end up here in South Africa. And, and it happens across a lot of different states, and particularly in Southeast Asia, where you're migrating a problem of people who uh, end up in a, a different country. So until there's harmonization in all the countries around an area, statelessness will carry on. And now the problem is trying to get international agreements and international buy-in from a lot of different countries is very complicated. Mm. Uh, and th- th- that is part of the difficulty in the legal situation uh, because uh, what you're talking about is we're also trying to uh, deal with these laws which govern citizenship and identity of people's nationals in a climate where uh, the A, there's a lot of uh, anti-migrant sentiments sure. and a lot of, there's this confusion between mm. stateless people and migrants uh, which we see a lot of in South Africa mm. alone which has great laws which is obviously exacerbated in other mm. countries mm. so there will be resistance against having clear registration laws uh, in other places but also in a climate of terror mm. where you know all you have a lot of countries who want to go into their shelves mm. and become more restrictive and just make a lot of things less accessible. And so trying to find clear legal solutions, I mean, the, the, the solutions are clear, mm. but trying to get buy-in on these solutions with the world the way it currently is, and a lot of these fears that countries either legitimately or illegitimately have, uh, it becomes difficult to to properly a, advocate for those for those solutions and uh, have them resolved against, mm. particularly with the rise of so many governments which are, I suppose, populist governments or populist opposition parties, uh, uh, which we see a lot of in Europe now, which would be very anti 
these kind of laws which seek to address a lot of these uh, situations, mm. and us versus them. So you you you, uh, you highlight very interesting dynamics there, Wayne, especially looking at those kind of international kind of pressures that we're seeing, uh, also in terms of people kind of being almost insular to the whole refugee crisis. When you see what's happening in Europe currently, and also the fact of terrorism being one of those kind of factors that come in. Uh, Leon, what are your thoughts to some of these interesting factors and uh, also dynamics that are being introduced now by Wayne? I think it's, obviously as Wayne has indicated, it's very complex. And yeah. one, could, one could move from um, one region to another in the world um, and find that the, uh, the dynamics are completely different. Uh, we have encountered cases where, um, as Wayne mentioned earlier, people uh, might not necessarily have been um, able to take up nationality rights where, for example, a female is discriminated against and she can't pass this on to her child. Um, I believe mm-hmm. that there are quite a few cases around the border areas of South Africa um, and where there's been a lot of cross-border movement where children have been left behind without any birth registration and parents have possibly died or the children are technically abandoned where those children are stateless. So they would have either been left with friends or or, or grandparents. Um, And it's a combination of a refugee asylum seeker and statelessness situation. But ultimately, those children end up kind of hidden, uh, and they also end up uh, without um, any documentation. And we've had particular cases where we've heard of in the northern parts of the country, Mm. close to the Zimbabwe border, where you have a lot of cross-border movement between families around the Mozambican border as well. and I think that uh, with the AIDS um, issue, particularly in KZN, they've indicated that quite a few foreign children find their way um, into KZN without, without parents or the parents have passed away. They're left with family and friends, but they then have no registration documents of any kind, and they end up being stateless in the, in the, broader, sense of the, in the broader sense of the word. So it is complex, um, and as Wayne has indicated, it takes number one uh, project to identify these these different stateless people and then obviously if the laws don't allow uh, for this to be handled expeditiously and efficiently um, governments would have to put in specific um, directives to provide these people with either interim documentation mm-hmm. um, to, to give them status wherever they find themselves or um, and I would say um, to compel their country, once it's been verified that, for example, a child who finds himself in South Africa is actually a Mozambican national or Basutu national or Zimbabwe national, Mm. um, to actually compel that state to register that child. Mm. And I would say that it has to be done within a particular period. Mm. There's just too many stories that we hear of um, people who are waiting months and years for these kinds of registrations to be affected. Mm. Well, that's how we're going to wrap it up. It seems like a very um, a space where there's still a, a comma or a, a dot, 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 where it's still to be continued because there's still a lot that still needs to be done. Uh, but thank you for helping us understand. I think uh, at the beginning I was trying to break it down and also just in my own mind, so I really, really understand it. And it was very helpful to have you both. Thank you to uh, Leon Isaacson for joining us back here on our program. He's the Managing Director of the Global Migration South Africa. Thank you as well to Wayne Ngube, who is the Attorney at the Litigation Unit at the South African Lawyers for Human Rights. Thank you for giving us your time. Thank you. Thank you very much.
Hi, I'm Zonke Dikana, a South African Afro-Soul musician, songwriter and producer. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And you can catch me on at Zonke Music on Twitter and Zonke Tikana on Facebook. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Well, it's 11.45 Central African time. Let's quickly move on. We've got Wisani Matebula standing by to give us our business news. Thanks, Benjamin. Good morning. The South African Institute of uh, Professional Accountants, CIPA, has warned against the bogus accountants who are not registered with the body. This is the tax season approaches here in South Africa with the window opening for individuals on July the 1st. CIPA acting CEO Faith Nguenya says choosing an accountant with good qualifications, skills and experience is crucial for individuals who may not understand the intricacies of tax filing. Before you can call yourself a professional accountant, you must have at least three years of post-qualification experience whilst you are doing your learnership. They have gone through business practices before they can call themselves an accountant. How do I check if the person I'm approaching is a member of a recognized controlling body? You'd first have to ask the tax practitioner which body and Tanzania's Communications Regulatory Authority is set uh, to block all mobile phones with uh, non-genuine international mobile equipment identity numbers from the country's mobile networks from June the 16th. The looming switch-off of fake and substandard mobile phones is sending shockwaves to dealers who have resorted to the wait-and-see approach, resulting into an increase in prices of original handsets. Gabriel Zakaria reports from Dar es Salaam. Sorry, but no one's available to answer your call at this time. If you'd like to leave a message, please wait for the beep, then press pound, press 3, then dial your... As the June 16, 2016 approaches, and the old fake and substandard handset will be switched off, dealers' talks of mobile phones are decreasing, sending prices of original ones up. Kenya and Uganda embarked on a move to switch fake mobile phones in 2012, forcing traders of such products to find a new home in Tanzania. And Zimbabwe's banks have agreed to lower charges on electronic transactions to promote the use of electronic banking amidst a cash crisis. The announcement follows a public outcry on service fees that saw customers paying a flat 10 US dollars or 140 rand charge on a single interbank transfer. Shingai Nyoka reports. In a circular, the country's central bank said that with immediate effect, most fees, including the use of -of point-of-sale machines and internet banking charges, would be slashed, some by more than 50%. Banks have also agreed to reduce monthly account fees for individuals to a maximum of $5, US but they've retained the high cash withdrawal charges. Zimbabwe has been hit by severe cash shortages that the central bank blames on a widening trade deficit and externalization. Last month, the Reserve Bank announced that it plans to introduce a local equivalent of the U.S. dollar, and that sparked bank runs. Deposits are drying up fast, forcing banks to reduce daily cash withdrawals, some to as little as a tenth of previous limits. 
and Kenyan consumers will pay more fuel for fuel at the pump for the next month after the Energy Regulatory Commission raised uh, retail prices during its monthly review on Tuesday. The ERC has increased the minimum uh, retail price of petrol in the capital Nairobi by 2.3% per litre, saying the costs of importing refined petroleum products had gone up. Financial indicators, the dollar trading at 15.25 South African rents, 10.89 Botswana Pula and 10.73 against the Zambian Kwacha. Also trading at 0.70 to the British pound and 0.88 against the euro. Commodities gold, $1,283. Platinum is at $977 per fine ounce. Brent crude oil has gone down to $49.13 per barrel. That's how it's looking right now. Now we've got Figure Lingwati standing by to give us our sports. In our sports update this hour, the world's fastest man, Usain Bolt, has confirmed that he will compete in a 200 meter at the IWF Diamond League meeting in London on the night of the 22nd of July. The London Anniversary Games meeting organizers announced that the 100 meter and 200 meter world record holder will face Great Britain's 2014 European 200 meter champion Adam Gemmel, Zanel Hughes, and Nathaniel Michel Blake. The trio are the second, third, and fourth fastest British 200-meter runners ever, and all of them will be aiming to become the first British athlete to beat Bolt in a race which potentially could be the fastest 200-meter race ever held in Britain. This will be Bolt's eighth appearance at the London League of the prestigious IWAF Diamond League after first appearing in 2005, aged 18. In rugby news, South African under-20 national team, the Baby Box, face off with France tonight in a must-win match to qualify for the semi-finals of the under-20 World Cup or World Championships in Manchester. The Baby Box lost 19-13 to Argentina on Saturday. Of the three big names, this was one where South Africa were outplayed and outthought by a smart team. That puts David Theron's side in the perilous position of having to beat France heavily today at the Manchester City Academy Stadium while having to wait for another result to go their way. Theron explains the changes he made. Yes, partly it can be uh, player management. On the other hand, uh, you know, we know that uh, we need to do well against France. We need to go out there and, and try to get the bonus point. So... Uh, we are, apart from managing the players, you know, we believe that this team uh, is the best equipped to to give us that result, and uh, because this is an all-or-nothing game for us. Theron says they know what to expect from France tonight. Uh, what, what we've seen uh, of France in the previous two games is that they've got a, a solid set piece. We need to attack them there. We need to deprive them from good ball because we know they want to run it. Uh, they need space to do it in, and so we need to have a very, very good defence as well. And uh, the breakdown is also going to be a, a, a very important aspect in this game. In football news, Russia could be thrown out of Euro 2016 if their fans cause further trouble inside the stadium after UEFA imposed a suspended disqualification 
and a 150,000 euro fine on the Russian Football Union RFU. It is alleged that masked Russian supporters charged at England fans, punching and kicking them after the final whistle of the one-all draw in their Group B match at the Stade Velodrome in Marseille on Saturday. Russia's fans were also involved in violent clashes with England supporters in the port city before and after the match. UEFA's head of media and communications, Pedro Pinto, explains further. Charges related to crowd disturbances, racist behavior and use of fireworks. And these charges were brought against the RFU and the control ethics and disciplinary body decided to implement the following sanctions. A fine of 150,000 euros and the suspended disqualification of the Russian national team from UEFA Euro 2016 for the crowd disturbances. In accordance with the Article 20 of the UEFA disciplinary regulations, this disqualification is suspended until the end of the tournament. Such suspension could be lifted if incidents of a similar nature, and this is crowd disturbances, occur inside the stadium at any of the remaining matches of the Russian team during the tournament. Now, this decision can be appealed, and we will wait for an appeal and whether it comes. Indo also says additional security is going to be in place for the next matches in Lille and Lanz. Russia will play Slovakia in Lille today, and England face Wales in Lanz on Thursday. We will implement additional corrective measures uh, for the games coming up in Lens and Lille, and we hope that those measures will be sufficient to avoid any other crowd trouble during the matches. And with the Rio Olympic Games less than two months away, the team with two-time London Marathon winner Eliud Kipchoge and 2012 Boston Marathon champion Wesley Korir have stepped up their preparation in a bid to reclaim the title they last won eight years ago. The Kenya's Olympic men's marathon team started their training run with a lineup of veteran athletes, including a current lawmaker. That's your sport news this hour. Well, that's how we wrap it up. Thank you for joining us here on African Dialogue. Remember, we come to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. Remember, you can uh, interact with us on Twitter at African Dialogue. That's our handle. Or you can find us on Facebook. The Facebook page is titled Channel Africa. Or SMS us your thoughts on plus 27796957930. You can also email us at info at channelafrica.org. Thank you to those who listen to us uh, via America. You can remember, uh, you can call us on uh, 605-475-1711. That's 605-475-1711. And you can listen to us at no extra costs. That's how we wrap it up. Until tomorrow, God bless.